This show is proudly brought to you in partnership with Adreno. Shop with our sponsors at spearfishing.com.au and use the code NoobSpearo at checkout to save $20 on purchases over $200, while you can also enjoy $15 flat shipping Australia-wide. Adreno is the biggest dive store in the world, stocking a huge range of Spiro's favourite gear with mega stores in Brisbane, Sydney and now Melbourne and 60 talented underwater experts on staff. It's a no-brainer to head in before your next big spearfishing trip. Check them out at spearfishing.com.au. I wanted to share awesome experiences that you can have when you are in the water. And that's why I started spearfishing. I just clamped down on the reel and got drugged down to about 50 feet. And I'd never had a battle like that before in my life. So when you're learning where to hunt and find fish, near the hot spots, it's where fish want to be. Don't overcomplicate your gear. Don't go diving dressed up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> I actually started off in stubbies with a bloody belt with a pig knife on it. And they've seen this big fin break the surface. Rolled into the water, look down, here's this nice big great white. <laughs> Once your face hits the water and you feel relaxed and all the other stresses of life seem to disappear. It's a whole new world and it's mysterious, it's magical. Beats the shit out of knitting anyway. Oh yeah. So g'day new Spiro community, thanks for tuning in today and, and, and listening to Shrek and Turbo at it again. Today we are interviewing Emmanuel Bova, he's the founder of Manny Sub Spear Guns, we're going to cover roller guns today so it's pretty exciting, but um, he got started spearfishing in Italy before moving to Sydney and uh, we're going to try and get a bit of a rundown on his personal history because he's been diving quite a long time but we're going to do some deep dives into spearfishing equipment today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while so thanks for joining us today Manny. No worries, hi guys, how you doing? Not too Good, bad. Good mate, thanks for joining us Manny. Manny, could you fill us in on your background on where and how you got started spearfishing? Yeah sure, uh, I grew up in uh, Genoa, uh, northern Italy. It's a city not far from France, about two hours drive, give or take, and that's where I started my diving. Um, originally started in about the mid-80s, about 84. Yeah, wow. Uh, until uh, 88, where my whole family moved back to Australia, I think for the second time at the time, so I did it back and forward, so yeah. Cool, cool. So I pretty much uh, speared in Italy for the first uh, four years until I moved over. Yeah, nice. And then you adjusted to the Sydney conditions. Yeah, Sydney was completely different. I mean, nothing like uh, the Mediterranean. Mediterranean is calm, clean, but no fish. It was the complete opposite. Uh, dirty, rough, and a lot of fish and sharks. So, total <laughs> opposite. <laughs> cool. And I've got here, like in 1993, you started um, importing and distributing OMA equipment in Australia. Is that that is correct, yeah. Uh, I first started, uh, I've always been obsessed uh, with spearfishing equipment and uh, I thought, you know, I was using an Oma gun at the time. I really liked it. It was an Oma T20, probably one of the, the first uh, serious guns that Oma ever brought out. It was probably the beginning of uh, the big, you know, arbalets that Oma was producing. Okay, yep. And, uh, yeah, uh, I liked the gear and uh, in Australia at the time there wasn't actually many European companies from memory. There was only Picasso, which yep. also I just started at the time. Cool. So it would have been Picasso and me. And, yeah, I did it for quite a few years. Yep. Um, a lot of guys at the time weren't using straight shafts. They were still using, you know, homemade guns with prangers. So uh, it wasn't easy getting the equipment, you know, to the guys. They were setting their ways to some extent, but slowly, slowly, uh, things uh, changed. Yeah, cool. And, yeah. So 
So um, you also joined the San Susi Dolphins around the same time. That's right, yeah. Uh, not long after um, I sort of started the, the Oma business, uh, I joined uh, the best club in Sydney, I believe, uh, the biggest, <laughs> most established, uh, yeah. and a club that has definitely produced some of the biggest champions in the sport. So, yeah, joined the Dolphins uh, in 94, and uh, I've been with the club ever since, so a long time, and also started competing uh, in 94 as well. Yeah, cool, cool. And i got here, 1998, you were reserved for the for Australia, competing in the World Champs. Where was that? Well, yeah, uh, there wasn't any reserves. So I didn't dive the Nationals, I uh, offered to go. I was, I was going to be in Europe at the time, and I said, well, I might as well join you guys. And I said, yeah, why not? We haven't got anyone else. So I joined the team, and uh, it was in Croatia. Oh, cool. Uh, on a bunch of islands uh, off uh, Zara. Yeah. Uh, went over there with, yeah, with the guys, and uh, it was definitely a learning curve for myself and uh i think the guys as well in the team <laughs> apparently it's beautiful like I, I think we were talking to darren shields and he i think he was at that same comp and he said um you know like every single team was chasing after the last fish in croatia <laughs> yeah it was a very challenging comp uh, i remember uh but i remember one thing that stuck to my mind about that comp was the politics that went beyond it uh oh, okay. i remember there was meetings i actually attended one of the meetings on behalf of the australian team because they're actually uh speaking in um italian and uh croatian as well okay and uh i was the only one obviously able to speak italian so i attended the team he finished off uh with screaming i mean i was like <laughs> oh wow funky, man this is beyond never heard you know the guy started screaming guys getting up and walking off uh eventually i walked out and the guys what happened i said uh they said you know translate what's happening i said believe me you don't want me to translate don't worry about it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. It was like pretty out of control. It was uh, about you know who got to compete uh, prior, not competing prior, but uh, some some teams did the homework in certain grounds, mm-hmm. and uh, then the locals decided to pull the plug on those grounds for their own benefit, and yep. the other teams, yeah, got quite upset by it and quit. Uh, they pulled the plug. They said, we're not competing now. So it was very, yeah, politically driven, the whole thing. Wow. I, t- yeah. I, t- I tell you what, it, for me to pull to travel all that distance and then pull the pin on a spearfishing trip, it'd have to be something major. Yeah, like well, right. Uh, the Aussies weren't going to pull the pin because uh-huh. I think uh, <laughs> we, tra- we travel from the furthest place. You know. Yeah, uh, you spend all your dollars just getting there. Far exactly. out. I'm not going shopping. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the Europeans were the ones that actually some of the teams pulled the plug on on that comp because they did the homework in different. Uh, zones and when they found out their homework wasn't going to pay off they thought you know yeah at the end of the day i believe in you know a good diver should be able to dive in any condition and still find fish yeah. uh, uh, even with pro- without homework now did the uh just out interest did the, did the croatians come out on top no no uh oh. from memory uh it goes back quite a while uh i'm pretty sure it was the spanish team uh yeah. the spanish diver uh alberto march won the title uh and his team members were also uh up there as well and uh that they won i'm pretty certain they won the, the actual world titles uh yeah, cool. australia we had gunta i think finishing in 10th position which was a great result for the australian team yeah and uh, I think the team also finished 10th as well. But don't quote me on it. It goes back uh, quite a while back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, no, it was a good result for the uh, Aussie team as well, and uh, yeah, great experience. I loved it. So, you, you, are you still competing now, Manny? Uh, actually, uh, yes. Uh, this year, I actually took a break uh, because of work and other commitments as well. But yeah. um, I've competed for geez uh, from '94 until now, until late last year, 22 years uh, yeah, straight. Wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> this year, I've decided to put my championship. I mean, I, I dive the Element Shield mostly, yep. which is a, a champion a Sydney-based uh, championship. And uh, it involves diving one competition per month. And uh, it's sort of pretty full on because that whole weekend, it's pretty much gone. And uh, oh, wow. so this year, I'm probably going to dive, uh, going to be a bit more selective and just dive one comp here and one comp there, more like bigger comps rather than championship. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. And so you've, you've, you've been involved with gear since, you know, pretty much you come to Australia. So after Omer... Uh, I've got here top sub wetsuits. You imported them for a little while. And That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, also started importing uh, top sub wetsuits uh, made in Italy, uh, grey custom made wetsuits. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, imported them and mostly supplied them to Comspiros and a few shops. Cool. Yeah, right. Manny, um, apart from your history of importing gear, when you came from Italy, and and you came to Sydney to start spearfishing. Um, how did you adjust to those conditions, and and what sort of species were first on your list to target? Well, um, the main species uh, I, I was I wasn't picky. Uh, pretty much coming from Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Love the honesty. <laughs> Put it this way: in Italy, uh, between eighty four and eighty eight, I was spearing. Um, Cuttlefish and octopus, and uh, I, rem- I remember also steering baitfish because I couldn't find anything else. Yep. So I was a young boy at the time, but uh, I just like loved shooting anything uh, at the time. You know, I, you know the excitement and was there. So, but when I came to Australia, I knew that I could just you know ch- go for other species than just cuttlefish and octopus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was shooting pretty much just the basic reef fish. Uh, I remember ludric, uh, black drummer, red mowies. Uh, Red rock cards, just all the basic uh, species that you would find in Sydney: bonito, blue mowies, and uh, yeah, stuff like that. Just the basic uh, bread and butter fish. You must have been like a kid in the candy store when you first got in the water at Sydney. I could not believe my eyes, and like, <laughs> feet of water that'd be like uh, one or two kilo fish. I mean, in Italy, people dive forty meters and still don't <laughs> see one or two kilo fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Well, that, that would be depressing, mate. Honestly, I think I'd give it up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, diving in Italy, you have to stay. You have to be very, definitely, very motivated to spear because a lot of the times, even the best divers will go out and will only catch a fish probably out of twenty uh, percent of the times. And these are the best divers. Yeah, right. When I was there, I was diving with uh, the Italian champion as well as uh, he won one world title as well. Yeah, uh, Stefan. Uh, his name is Stefano Bellani. Yep, he retired. Yep. Mate, I went in his backyard. Now, you would think the world champion in his backyard would actually shoot a fish. I dived with him two days. Day one, he did not shoot a fish. So I thought, what are my odds of shooting a fish? Buckley's, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, what's, yeah. so what's everybody else doing? They're just um, free diving, essentially. Free diving with a gun. 
No, no, that's why the Italians are really good at uh, with diving equipment because since they're not shooting fish, they might as well work on diving equipment. <laughs> <laughs> sure, they'd love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've heard a little bit about getting started in sort of both countries. I mean, did you have any obstacles getting started, Manny? Uh, in in Italy, um, not really, but in Australia, yeah, there was a couple of uh, obstacles, uh, a little bit of seasickness, but nothing too big. Just for the first uh, two or three years, I remember vomiting in competitions and stuff. You're talking Turbo's language here. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing like going going down, doing a dive, coming up, and having vomiting. a chuck, yep. doing your breathe up, going down, coming up, doing it again. It, uh, exactly. It's not much fun. I remember, the uh, yeah, the, when, when I used to spew uh, through the snorkel, I didn't even stop. I didn't even bother <laughs> taking the snorkel out. I used to spew through the, through the snorkel and keep diving in comps. That's how, how I was. I thought, if I'm going to beat it, I'm going to be. I'm gonna have to do it this way. You know, just go hard on it. Don't think about it. So, <laughs> so spew used to land on my head again, uh, and walk it off my mask and stuff, but it was all good. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, these are good things like, you know, every every guy starting out has their own kind of battles. So it's interesting hearing the seasickness one. I I've, I've been uh, been blessed there. I, I I don't get it. So, ah, cool. And how how did you go adjusting to? I guess did you do a bit of rock hopping when you first started coming from Italy? Like I've seen the Mediterranean that often barely has a ripple on it, and then you, right. you've got this um, savage sea down there in Sydney to contend with. Well, exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. Probably that's why I was getting seasick. I was just getting thrown around, uh, you know, uh, a fair bit. Whilst in Italy, it's always flat as a lake, you know. Yeah. But uh, I did start rock hopping in Australia. Yeah, I used to do a lot of it. Uh, unlike now, I dive a bit less. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, I used to rock up a lot, actually, probably about three times a week. Uh, Any time yeah, yeah. I could take time off, I just used to go and rock up, uh, mostly off the eastern suburbs and occasionally down here, in, down south in the national park as well. Mm. Yeah, nice. All right, mate. What um, can you share with us? So we've gone sort of through your history. How about uh, one of your early memorable fish or your most memorable fish? Could you share that story with us? Oh, a memorable fish. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I've shot some good memorable fish, but uh, wouldn't be the first one that I shot. But definitely, uh, there's a great story beyond this fish. It was a few years ago in the Coral Sea, actually, oh. on a yellowfin uh, tuna. What happened was uh, I was uh, just in one of those little dories, uh, 500 k's out on Fred- Frederick uh, Reef. Okay. And uh, I was just drifting uh, in the blue. And uh, I started burling slowly, just feeding the burly out. And there was nothing around. So I kept persisting when all of a sudden, uh, you know, a decent-sized yellowfin, nothing huge, probably would have been mid-20s, 23, 25-kilo fish, started uh, eating on my burly. Uh, and I thought, hmm, nice, uh, at least there's one fish around. So I kept persisting and feeding this fish, but I couldn't actually uh, get anywhere near it. The fish would come up from, you know, God knows, it was one or 2,000 metres deep where I was diving, super deep. Mm-hmm. The fish used to come out of the blue and uh, munch on the burly at 30 metres and disappear. And uh, I thought, man, I've got to come up with a technique to try and get him a bit uh, shallower so I can put a good shot in his head. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, you put uh, that beautifully. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to put solid shots on fish yeah. like that. You don't want to put them, you know, guts or tail or you know, you want to put them literally in the head to slow them down, and <laughs> that way sharks don't eat them. Yeah, yeah. So eventually, uh, 
20 minutes into it, I managed to get the fish a little bit shallower, about 20 meters, but still at 20 meters, diving down to 20 and, you know, trying to uh, place a shot still wasn't easy because by the time he ate the burley, it kept disappearing. Yeah, yeah. So I was getting a little frustrated, but uh, during the hunt, I discovered one valuable thing, that the fish was making consistent appearances. Every two to three minutes, it used to come up to feed and then disappear. And I thought, maybe I've got to start working on the timing aspect. So I started uh, looking at my watch and timing him for about five, ten minutes to try and work out, a, you know, the, the average time that it took to come up and eat. Hey, right. So I thought, I never had to apply that technique on a fish <laughs> before. <laughs> so eventually I worked out his timing. And um, by, that, by that stage, the fish became quite confident that he was going to eat and get away with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no yeah. No such thing as a free lunch, is there? We, yeah, we, exactly. And that's what screwed the fish ultimately. He became really confident. And uh, <laughs> eventually I managed to, yeah, time him exactly to the second. And I made a dive down to 15 metres. He, he took the last lot of early. I timed him about a minute and a half. Then uh, I started diving down and I waited a good uh, minute at 15 metres. There was two pieces of burley. I, I basically was in midwater waiting f- between two pieces of burley waiting for this fish to appear. All of a sudden, before my eyes, this yellowfin tuna comes to eat the burley, but he was so adamant that I was on the surface that he stopped in front of me looking at me and the, the look on his face was just priceless. He goes, <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> I, as I've actually got it on video, and I keep watching uh, the video just to watch the expression on the tuna's face. He was just <laughs> dumbfounded, completely dumbfounded. He just was like almost blind. He stopped, looked at me, the next second, bang, I just shot him between the head, yeah. uh, between the eyes, and uh, the shaft came out of his ass, literally. Uh, wow. On the mono. Uh, at the time, I was using mono, <laughs> yeah. and uh, straight down uh, to 30 meters, he pulled the first float down, and uh, pretty much uh, put himself on the on the side, and blood started pissing out. Uh, and I thought, fantastic! How good is this? I was super excited. Yeah. Not long after, probably 10, 20 seconds later, all I see on the bottom is just a big silver tip appearing out of the oh. blue. Did not see him the whole time. And I thought, oh, shit, this ain't looking good. Started circling the fish. The next minute, this shark opens his jaws and takes a look at me at the, on the surface. I was literally 30 meters above him. And I thought, oh, dear. With the teeth point, I never had a shark actually pointing his teeth at me, facing me from this, on the, whilst on the surface. And that's when I thought, mate, you can have the fish. I'm not going to argue with you. Just take the fish. And literally two seconds later, I swallowed the whole fish and uh, took the fish. I felt like I was very, I felt robbed, <laughs> you could say. Yeah. Just a 40-minute uh, drift in current, did everything by the book, and then I felt, uh, yeah, completely robbed. But uh, that's the mem- one of the most memorable uh, lost uh, fish, I-, I could say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's an awesome battle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. contest, contest of the wills with the fish. And you exactly. and you and you won, and then you had a contest of the wills with the shark, and you and you lost. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's cool. But on the other hand, I do have a great story as well. Uh, if we got time, uh, on yeah. a good snapper, which I managed to land. <laughs> okay, yeah. let's hear it. Go for it. Well, uh, it was just in my backyard, uh, Royal National Park. Uh, usual day, I was boat diving. It was actually one day before the comp, uh, so I took the boat out by myself, uh, just for. 
to stretch my lungs. I often do that before comps, go out the day before, just warm up, shoot a few fish, get my eye on the gun and stuff, and uh, just stretch, uh, just warm up overall. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, I just started shooting just your basic reef fish when all of a sudden I was just laying on the bottom and uh, a big school of silver drum had appeared with a really big snapper just behind them. And I thought, man, that's a big snapper. But it took off in no time. As soon as he saw me, boom, disappeared. Mm. And I thought, man, uh, I'm not going to get him laying on the bottom. I can lay it down here for one or two minutes. It's just not going to appear. So one of the best things you can do for snapper is just use burley to get him in. And uh, having a, a black drummer on my rig, the first thing I did is just started chopping it and, you know, uh, dropping it down. To my amazement, the fish actually appeared in literally five seconds. Wow. Under the fence, going for the burley. I thought, how quick was that? Damn. So I got the second piece, threw it down, and I didn't have, didn't, didn't have time to grab the actual handle of the gun, and the fish took the second piece from my fence, <laughs> right <laughs> next to the fence. He was hungry. Wow. Yeah, so super hungry. The third time, I thought, buddy, you're not going to take the third piece. So I threw it down, <laughs> and... He almost got it from my hand, and I thought, you're not getting away with this. I started chasing him on the bottom, and we, he had literally the whole fish sticking out of his mouth. He had three pieces that he didn't even have time uh, to swallow. <laughs> zigzagging across the bottom, and uh, I worked out which way was zigzagging. was going left, right, left. So I worked out that it was zigzagging every two or three meters. So I, virtually I shot ahead. After he turned, I knew it was going to go straight for two meters. I shot ahead and lit got him from above, straight down, and uh, managed to get him. It was just a bit of a lucky and a bit of skill shot, I'd say, and well, the yeah, fish nice. ended up going uh, 7.6 kilos. Oh, oh wow. That's a nice snapper. So, yeah, for Sydney, it's, uh, it's a good snapper, I'd say. And a good hungry snapper. Very. <laughs> I, th- I think a lot, of, a lot of people, and probably some of our listeners, probably think that burling for fish means that it's going to be heaps easier, but... My experience, like when you're burly, like the fish that come in and feed on the burly trail, they move at like a rapid rate of knots. And they're not there just so you can pick them off and cherry pick them. So, I mean, it's it's still a hard job to spear a fish like that once you've got a good burly trail going. Absolutely. Uh, some species uh, pick up burly a lot slower and swim off and stuff, but snapbait's a fish that is extremely wary. Uh, it feels like they've got four eyes. They always know which where you are and they're always extremely aware. It's like mm. a 360, you know, view. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Be and, but when but they do get they do they can get very close to you uh, with early. So you just sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It really depends. But that one obviously did. Uh, awesome. came within a meter from me. Uh, at speed. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Just a uh, just a note there for our American listeners. When we talk about snapper, um, we're actually not talking about your stuff like your mutton snapper and, and those species. It's actually, I guess, what we call a pink snapper over here in Australia. And I don't know the scientific name, but it's a actual particular let's, kind of fish. L- let's, hey, Manny, have you got a photo of that fish? We might link it up in the show notes. Yeah, I do. I yeah, do. Cool, yeah. cool. All right, cool. We're going to link that up so our American listeners know what a snapper yeah, looks it's like. A particular, yeah, it's a particular fish with a particular behavioral traits and it's mm. uh, yeah, very mm. wary and, and quite prized. So, yeah, top fish. You also got it, by the way, with my little 90 as well. So that even... Oh, yeah, that's even <laughs> better. And uh, to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. 
Uh, now that you've done showing off with your 90 centimetre spear gun, we can't even get him with our 1.2. Uh, <laughs> what's your favourite hunting technique and how do you apply it effectively? All right. Uh, my hunting technique uh, is very European style. In Europe, they call it aspato, which means uh, lying on the bottom, waiting for the fish to come to you. Yep. In Sydney, it sort of works, but not too well. Uh, you need fish that are very inquisitive uh, for that technique to work well. Uh, where I find that it works well on kingfish, uh, on snapper it, it works, but the fish don't get to, don't, don't don't tend to get too close to you. Yeah, I've had whole schools of snapper come close, but not close enough. Occasionally, close enough to get a shot. Yep. Uh, but one of the techniques uh, that I probably want to take your, your listeners through is a type of burling with a bit of a difference. Okay. And that is burling uh, with newspaper. Uh, or even toilet paper, f- uh, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah just, go on. Yep. All right, basically, uh, a lot of people obviously burly with uh, fish. You've got to go and look for the fish and find it, shoot it, and then uh, chop it to bits. And all that process can take a fair bit of time. Uh, I mean, sometimes we can waste up to half an hour in just finding burly if there's not a lot of burly. Yep. Using newspaper saves you a lot of time. Uh and uh, leaves a, a really great trail in the water. But the best part of all, you can actually uh, you save a lot of time and energy in the process. Mm. And it leaves a fantastic, like really bright, burly trail that does not sink very fast, stays almost with you. It drifts so slowly that you can almost wow. have the newspaper with you the whole drift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, at the same time, it doesn't actually uh, attract sharks. Ah, nice. So in the coral sea, it works really, really well. Uh, I've shot some good fish. Most I've shot several fish probably from it. Uh, I've had Doctu come up to it, uh, wahoo, mackerel, uh, even kingfish, and you also get reef fish uh, as well coming up with jobfish, jacks. Yeah, nice. Uh, you get, um, yeah, different species of fish uh, with it. it. So cool. what's, what's, the, uh, what's the trigger? What's what's what do you think's making this system work? Do you do you soak the like the newspaper in in the in the sort of the fish and the blood and stuff? No, no. Uh, all I get is you know when you read the newspaper and you see articles that you don't want to read or it's just uh, crap articles about uh, the whole Courier Mail newspaper. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You know the articles that you don't want to, you just want to throw straight in the bin. I just toss them right in the boat, and I thought I'm gonna you know burly these articles in the water. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Literally, okay. uh, normal newspaper, even if you want uh, toilet paper works well. Something that break. Don't use glossy magazines because they don't absorb water too well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Normal newspaper, yeah, toilet paper, you just, I'll put it under the wetsuit jacket and uh, as soon as you jump in the water, sucks in a bit of water, I pull it out, uh, grab it with my hand and just sh- shake it several times and the whole thing just uh, shreds in a thousand pieces and then drifts with you. Yeah, it is. Awesome. Love One it. thing that uh, appeals to fish, uh, I mean, what the the reason why I guess why it works is because uh, fish first are actually with burley uh, are attracted by the visual. Uh, you know, there's like a visual. Uh, they see it as a like a target. Could be you know a dead fish. That's what they suspect. And paper from the distance does look like a lot of uh, broken pieces of uh, flesh. Yeah. Okay. Mm. The mm. only down. Is when fish get close to it, 
they know it's not food, so they don't hang around very long. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So you do need to be fairly close to it and, uh, yeah, in order to take a shot because fish are not going to feed off it. They're going to swim through it, look at it, and when they realize they can't eat it, they're just going to move on. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely fantastic and super safe in shark-infested waters. Sharks come up to it, hang around, and then they disappear, and then fish start appearing. These sharks often appear before fish in Burley. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But with this technique, uh, it gets rid of the sharks pretty damn fast. Do you, yeah, I like that. Do you use bo- Do you use it in combination with real Burley as well? No, no, not really. No, okay. when I go paper, I go full paper. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. This is good. Occasionally, you can throw in, if you want to put a bit of shine through it, you can have a real flasher as well mixed with it, like that yep. actually flashes. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. if you don't want that, uh, well, if you don't want to use a normal flasher, you can actually use uh, aluminium foil for the same purpose that actually mm. shines light. Yeah, So right. you can get aluminium foil and break it up in little pieces. And same as paper, will actually float for quite a while in your drift. Yeah, cool. And uh, both work well together. Cool, cool, cool. Possibly not as good for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> like I was you- say, paper is good, but aluminium, yeah, there might be some people that go, nah, you shouldn't, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, paper, the paper would break down fine, though. So like, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hey, guys, really excited to announce that we have a special offer for all Noob Spiro listeners. Pete Ryder from howtofreedive.com is offering us 20% off all his courses. I have just finished the five-minute freediver course, which is aimed at enabling you to hold your breath for five minutes. I'm at the four-minute 15 mark. I haven't hit those marks in a long time, and I, I find this course to be really well-structured, really easy to follow, and I'm getting some great gains out of it. It's the course that Turbo and I both wish we had done starting out. It just saves you so much trouble and hassle. Use the code NoobSpiro to save 20% on all of Pete's courses. He's put together this deal just for listeners of the show. That's at howtofreedive.com. Use the code NoobSpiro. Okay, next section of the show, scariest moment. I believe you've got a couple of stories at least for us about you know some of the scary moments you've experienced and what you learned from them. Yeah, um, one of the scariest moments was actually last year. I went uh, on a friend's boat uh, to the Coral Sea. Yeah. Uh, last year was about, we went to Flinders Reef, uh, which is about uh, 250 kilometers out to sea. The boat is not huge for the distance. It's just under eight meters. Yep. There was four of us on board. Uh, when we got there, we anchored up uh, near the, the actual uh, safe haven, which uh, it's like there's a weather station and little beach there. Uh, the beach is the only – it's a lagoon. It's the only probably safe haven in the whole place there. Yep. And we anchored up uh, on a shallow bommy, probably about 8 to 10 metres deep. Yep. During the night, the wind started picking up. Nothing too strong, but uh, enough to spin us around. Uh, the wind was probably anywhere between 12 to 15 knots. And uh, at about 3.45 in the morning, uh, amongst all the slaps from the waves underneath the boat, I heard a different, sa- a different slap. And I remember waking up, and the next minute the skipper is up and we're looking at each other. He goes, we're on the reef, aren't we? I went, yeah, we are. The next minute it was just like, man, everyone out of bed, the other two guys, ah, we're on the fucking reef, everyone on, you know, off the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, we were 
all of us were like fully asleep and you had to wake up and make decisions fast. Wow. And that was also jumping over the side of the boat. There was coral underneath. The boat was banging in the wind between coral bombies. Oh. And uh, there was, it was pitch black, so we had to turn the lights on in the boat, and they were not very bright, just uh, little LED lights. Uh, the first thing I thought, the first danger was, I'm going to cut my feet. I'm going to slice my feet open on the coral. So I happened to have my Crocs so right, right there, so I put them on and started carefully uh, stepping on the coral, and we managed very likely to steer the boat away from the actual coral. It banged a few times, and we, we beached it uh, in the middle of the night. Once it was beached, the wind was blowing the boat sidewards, so we, are, we had to hold it in place for the next uh, three, four hours until the sun came up uh, so the oh. boat wouldn't get stuck on sand. Wow. So a bit of an abrupt awakening, I, I, I would say. <laughs> that sounds like it. <laughs> so, so what happened there? The anchor just pulled? or Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, well, what happened? No, the anchor didn't pull. Uh, we got uh, The boat got spun around the coral on me until the actual – we ran out of chain and the rope started rubbing on the coral. Oh, uh, okay. And then eventually the coral cut straight through the actual uh, anchor oh, rope yeah. and uh, we lost anchor. We managed yeah. to retrieve it later on. Um, because we still had the mark on the GPS. Okay. Uh, leaving the, the actual uh, beach where we were was a bit of a mission because uh, tide was low, there was very tight passage. We didn't want to damage the hull. Mm. Out there you make one mistake where you damage the boats or the prop and you're not going to make it back or no one is going to come out and get you. So mm. we had to be very smart. Uh, we managed to get the boat to the actual beach and then we just had to get back out. Mm. Um, two of the guys decided we had to dive, jump, put the dive gear on as soon as the sun was up and dive, you know, the little area to see if we could find a safe passage for the boat. They managed to find it and uh, we managed to drive the boat uh, back through it uh, safely. Uh, the passage, mind you, was only very, very narrow, only gave us about half a meter either side of the boat without wow. hitting coral. Yep. So we managed to do it and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was good. We retrieved the anchor and then was happy days. Okay, so what were some of the takeaways? Have you guys changed your anchoring practice? Because I've heard of guys using more than one or two anchor points. That's what, what a it, very good point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the anchoring practice was that the guy, uh, it was uh, the packing of all the gear was done the last minute thing uh, yeah. the morning before, and uh, they forgot to pack the second anchor. That was oh, the problem. Okay. That was yeah. the anchoring practice that was missed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no worries. I, and look, I don't, I don't think that's a hard mistake to make. And a lot of guys have more faith in their anchor than I think they probably should. And because uh, mm. we're divers, we wrap it around something and we think, oh, that'll be sweet. Exactly. But, uh, so ideally, out there, you want two anchors, one at the front, and then dump the second one, so you're not going to spin around. All right, cool. Uh, you got another scary story for us, I believe. Well, yeah, um, this was in Fiji um, a few years ago. Uh, and uh, I was out there looking for fish the whole time. It was a family holiday, mind you, but uh, I managed to go diving every day for just half a day. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Don't go on family holidays without taking the guns. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, I went diving with the locals and uh, they took me to some great reefs. The, deeps, the, the reefs were not excessively deep, but they were not shallows. They were averaging between 18 to 30 metres deep. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
all I was obviously trying to do is just get a basic feed. I wasn't really targeting any specific species. I was just out there on a holiday trying to have some fun, but I really wanted to shoot some fish. And every reef that it, uh, the locals were taking me, there was just no fish. And I was diving literally pretty hard, constantly between you know 20 and 25 meters with little uh, recoveries. Uh, the fact that I was fit is where it sort of started backfiring because um, – I was diving down, doing lot, fairly long dives between a minute and a half to two minutes plus, and my recoveries were very, very short, up 20 to 30 seconds, which I was literally, I was breaking all the rules in the book. You need Your recovery's got to be far, far longer than that, at least double to triple your bottom time. Yep. Um, I was feeling comfortable, and that was what got me in trouble. And on the fifth day, I managed uh, to find a, a reef, a reef full of fish. So I started going even harder than the previous day, obviously, you know. And uh, halfway through the fifth day, I started feeling pins and needles uh, on my left arm. And I thought, no, it's not what I'm thinking it is. I mean, the bends give you pins and needles. And I thought, no, I'm not, you know, this can't be the bends. I don't qualify for the bends. I'm not diving. And I thought, possibly, because you've been diving. I started doing the mat, looking at my watch. But yeah, it was basically the bends. The bends, that was the first symptoms of the bends from freediving, which is yeah, quite wow. rare. So I felt, I felt this pin and needles in my left arm. Uh, I thought the watch band might have been too tight. Uh, so I remember loosening it up and letting a bit of water flush, but didn't really change anything. The next second, uh, the pin and needles started going from my left arm all the way across my shoulders uh, to, my, to my, the right arm. So literally both of my arms and shoulders were like buzzing. Yeah, wow. That's when I knew something was just wrong. I thought this is not right. And uh, I remember taking one last dive just to, to see how I felt, but quite shallow this time. <laughs> I went down to about 12, 13 meters and laid on the bottom and I felt extremely uncomfortable uh, considering I was di- diving double that, uh, uh, that pr- prior. Yep. So, yeah, uh, I thought, let's pull the plug. And um, I said to the guy, I think I've got the bends. And you got bench shaft? I said, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'll explain it to you later. Just take me in. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was a combination of uh, just, yeah, not enough uh, surface recovery as well as probably lack of water. I was in the water the whole time. The, the boat was anchored. And uh, I was sweating a lot, uh, losing a lot of fluids, and I was not also replacing those fluids. So it was a bit of a combination of both. So my understanding of the bins kind of was like, so nitrogen turns soluble uh, at under pressure, particularly when, you, when you're on scuba. And then if you come up too fast, it goes back into its gaseous form too quickly. Is that right? And you end up with bubbles in your bloodstream. Yeah, uh, to be honest, I don't know the actual, I wouldn't want to say yes or no because okay. I, I'm not an expert in that, but I know that it's definitely a built up of nitrogen in your elbows, uh, in your joints, and okay. elbows and in your joints throughout the body pretty much. Okay, all right, cool. And uh, it, it's also getting the, uh, the bends whilst free diving, uh, there's not a lot of help you can get out there because it's only started happening in the last, or well, quite a few years, but... There's a lot more cases uh, in the last probably 15 years. All right. So, yeah, uh, I knew that I had the bends and, uh, yeah, I had yeah, to no, recover. No. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try and find some some um, some more research on that because I don't know much about this either, to be honest, Manny, and I'll, I'll link some of that up in the show notes because uh, 
That's really that's that's really um interesting story. That's yeah, cool. Manny, what what um after after you sort of finished, how long did your symptoms last for? And um, you know, did they get worse, or you just sort of you came good over the course of the day, or what happened? Yeah, that's a good question actually, because the symptoms uh, completely changed uh, from when I first uh, first felt uh, the symptoms in the water. Mm-hmm. The pin and needles disappeared as soon as I jumped in the water. Uh, so in the water <laughs> in the boat, yeah. I say. Uh, I had a, a good drink of water and the, the pin and needles pretty much disappeared. I remember going back to the resort at lunch and uh, then around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I started experiencing a pretty strong euphoria. Pretty, almost felt it like I was on drugs. I remember giggling and laughing by myself and I just couldn't help it. <laughs> oh, like like nitri- nitrogen narcosis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. A pretty strong euphoria, which lasted until 11 o'clock that night, 11, 11.30. So for several hours, I made some phone calls and uh, I spoke to a couple of guys uh, in Australia and uh, one of them was Ray from Dive Art Fins, who also got uh, the bends uh, while starving in Greece. Okay. And uh, he knows his stuff and he told me, mate, you definitely got the bends, do not go in the water tomorrow. And I said, are you sure? He goes, 100%. So I said, all right, no diving tomorrow. <laughs> So I know with um, with scuba divers that experience the bends and commercial divers, they they go through like pretty hefty um, like decompression work uh, in a in a in a chamber in a hyperbaric chamber. Did you, did you do anything like that? Uh, yes and no. I was planning to, but what happened? <laughs> <laughs> just got busy. I got busy. I just got lost. And Hungry Jacks was on the way home. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, in Fiji, there's definitely no hyperbaric chamber, that's for sure, <laughs> on <laughs> yeah, the islands. Yeah, no. I knew I'll come back to Australia, I'll go in a chamber, and problem will be fixed. And after talking to Ray, he told me, when you come back to Australia, make sure that you speak to this doctor. He's the only one in Australia that can help you out. He's a Navy doctor. Tell him your symptoms. But please do not tell him uh, that you got it whilst free diving. He's not going to believe you. Just tell him you got a scuba diving, and you'll get some help. He will throw you in the chamber yeah. when done. A few weeks had passed, uh, well, not a few weeks, about a week, week and a half since I got back. Hmm. As soon as I came back, I rang the guy and I said, look, I've got these symptoms. Uh, symptoms also started changing. I started fe- uh, feeling pin and needles across my lips, my tongue and my throat. Oh, wow. And uh, I told the guy, uh, the doctor, exactly my feelings uh, and I-, I told him I got a free diving and he goes, no, free divers don't get this, only scuba divers. And I went, oh, shit, I shouldn't have told him. I told him I should have told him I got a scuba diving. <laughs> so yeah, you guys, sorry, mate. You guys, scuba uh, spiros uh, and free divers don't get the bends. He uh, goes, let me know how you feel in two weeks' time. Two weeks' time passed, and uh, I rang, rang him again. I said, I've got pin and needles across my lips, my tongue, and my throat still persisting. He goes, well, you might have, you might be bent, have the bends. I would suggest that you actually get uh, a very strong dose of anti-inflammatories. Uh, it was very heavy dosage, four times a day for, I think, two weeks. Yep, and yep. Uh, that should help uh, the nerve endings uh, improve. Uh, and because apparently when you cool. get the bends, your nerve endings get inflamed. Mm. So I took this ant- uh, very strong anti-inflammatories and two weeks later, I felt better. Yeah. You recommended to stay out of the water for about three months or so, and I did. Without diving, I had to stay under 10 meters for a few months, and I did that, and uh, I, haven't any, I haven't had any repercussions since. Mm. But then again, I've also been watching my service intervals uh, 
with greater detail this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's full on. Yeah, that, that's uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. Oh, it's unbelievable. It actually sounds pretty fun once you get back and you go through the euphoric stage. <laughs> sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, the euphoric stage was probably the only positive part of it. <laughs> it was a long hit as well from 4 until midnight, 11.30, so it was pretty good. All right, uh, Manny, you've already broken the rules with two scary stories. Uh, have you got another one? Well, uh, yeah, probably uh, the same trip <laughs> in the Coral Sea last year. Okay. Uh, day after, we're in the shallows shooting uh, reef fish uh, and testing uh, some of the roller guns. Uh, I remember shooting a job fish. It was getting late in the afternoon, still plenty of daylight, and uh, I shot just a small job fish. Pulled it in closely, and as I was pulling it in, pulling it in, um, a shark, just a reef shark, nothing big, maybe five, six foot, came in, trying to eat it several times, and eventually gave up. He knew it wasn't going to get it, and disappeared. Uh, I kept it in my in my hands, gave the gun to one of the guys to reload it, uh, so they could sh- uh, shoot another fish uh, for dinner. All of a sudden, that shark, probably about no more than five minutes later, three to five minutes later appeared behind me and between my legs with his jaws uh, jaws open going for my hand and fish. The only oh, thing right. that literally uh, saved me was the guy standing next to me, which was facing uh, facing me head on. So I saw the shark coming and I remember he screaming. Uh, I mean, I remember that forever was like, <laughs> with a snorkel-like screaming. I thought, oh dear, he's not screaming for, him- for himself. It-, it just came together real quick. This guy's screaming for my life. I got yeah, the fish right. in my hand. Man, that shark was between my legs, and that's when I felt probably the most vulnerable uh, in the water. <laughs> I'd imagine so. Yeah, I mean, out there, accidents can happen super fast, and you don't need a big shark uh, to bleed to death. All you need is a small shark to bite you in the right place, and you just bleed. Mm-hmm. And when you're that far offshore in a small boat, yeah, odds are not on your side. Okay, so from your other two stories, we've got some pretty solid takeaways. From this story, what did, what did you learn from it? What, did, what have you sort of changed perhaps? Okay, what I, well, one thing I definitely learned is uh, that do not be close to sunset. Uh, in sun, during sunset, sharks definitely go into beast mode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. and, uh, they definitely their behavior changes fast. They start feeding at night. Yep. And, uh, I mean, we were burling during the day, uh, a lot of fish. They kept the distance, but that fish decided to, I mean, that shark decided to have a go at me very close despite two divers were standing right next to me. So probably the main lesson is at sunset, be really, really careful. Okay. Cool. And shark infest the waters. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, yeah, no, no worries. That's, that's three really good stories with some really good takeaways for everyone. Um, awesome. Let's get into the meat of it, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into the Veterans Vault. So this is the part of the show where we ask you, our special guest, to take us deep into an area of spearfishing expertise. So we're going to talk spearfishing equipment deep dive again. Uh, I mean, I, I, I say again because we've recently done a deep dive into blue water spearfishing hunting equipment. Today we're going to cover something a little bit different. We're going to go into some components, I believe. So uh, where do you want to start, Manny? We're going to talk maybe about floppers and shafts. 
Yeah, I was going to go start off with spear shafts uh, and understanding the importance of a wall tune flopper. Okay. I've seen over the years many spear shafts from you know on other guns uh, where, where the flop is not actually tuned properly. Uh, the importance of a flopper obviously is, uh, is to hold the fish on uh, whilst he's fighting. But quite often people shoot fish, the fish is on, and then he gets off. Sometimes he gets off because you rip it through the guts, but sometimes the flopper just shuts because he's not tuned properly. I set my floppers on all my guns with uh, a weight of about a force of uh, 650 grams, just over half a kilo. So once it's locked open, you need to press it just over about 600 grams to shut it again. Okay. The reason why I do that is because sometimes, even if a flopper locks open, you need it needs to lock open with a reasonable amount of force because when you shoot big fish and you put a shaft straight through the other side of the fish, fish start running. As they start running, the force of the water can actually shut the flopper back down mm. and pull through. Right. So that's what a lot of people often don't realize. Why did I lose that fish? I, sh- I saw the flopper open and then – so, yeah, if you've got a fair bit of force on the flopper, it's going fo- it's gonna to actually uh, stop from shutting whilst the big fish is traveling uh, at high speed through the water, fish like – Wahoo or any other fish that has just got power. To tune that, to, Matty, when you tune that flopper right, um, what sort of degree do you let it free fall and then at what point should it be locking out? Yeah, right. Uh, generally halfway. So the minute uh, from where it's fully open to fully shut, I generally split it halfway. From halfway to the very top, it should start locking harder and harder. So by the time it reaches the, the top, it should eat. I like it to be locked open with that sort of uh, force of about 600 grams. Yeah, right. And and how do you test the two, the 600 grams? <laughs> yeah, uh, good question. <laughs> is a good way of doing it. You just get a, a bottle of water, fill it with water, yep. give or take a 600 ml bottle of water, tie a bit of string, and put it on the flopper. If the uh, hang it off the flopper, hold the shaft straight and get a, uh, the bottle hanging off the flopper. If, right. if you hang the bottle uh, and the flopper keeps shutting, it means obviously that the force of the, the bottle, the weight of the bottle, uh, it's uh, greater than what the flopper, flopper can actually hold. Mm. So you just got to keep tapping it with the hammer, the inside edges, until locks open enough, and, uh, and then you've got it. It takes a little – it's a little bit fiddly to do it, but uh, – yeah, it can be done. Um, it just takes a bit of experience and, uh, yeah. I might try and link up a YouTube video for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Just so people have got a visual reference. And when you when you are tuning and you are opening the flopper to make it uh, softer, you're tapping the you're tapping it out wider from... Correct. To, make, to loosen it up or... Yeah. To loosen it up. If you want to loosen it up, correct. Uh, you can do it with, uh, I use a pair of uh, pointy side cutters. Mm-hmm. You get it back on the inside on the closest edge that you can get your plies where the pin is yep. and you just open it outward very slowly. And uh, to close it, I generally just tap it with a hammer right. to increase the pressure. I'm going to be cheeky, Manny. Uh, do you have a preference with shafts? Like well, brand, brand and size? Well, I um I tend to like 
a lot of my shafts that I import and also resell are European uh, spr- spring stainless shafts. I don't use uh, the normal, I guess, uh, carbon steel or you know, spring steel because they tend to rust. Uh, but, yeah, I import my own range from overseas, and okay. they're also customized uh, to my specs. Uh, the floppers are custom. I use shark fins. So, yeah, I use, I guess, my own range of uh, shafts. Which okay. are, yeah, shark fins with loading notches. Uh, I mean, loading uh, shark fins uh, uh, to make the loading a little bit easier as well. And, and what about um, diameter? Diameter, I use all sizes. Uh, I, I do not go under 7 mil. Um, the range anywhere between 7, 7.5, 8, and I've also got 8.5 on wow. my, you know, bigger guns. Blue water cannons. Blue water mini cannons, I call them. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so what are some of the other sort of things you need to watch out for and, and look after with your shaft? <laughs> 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 was that intended? Oh, I love it. Yeah, Brown, Brown, lo- Brown loves shafts, so I just wanted to really ask a, some good questions about about shafts. What's important about shafts is what you attach to it, right? <laughs> strange idea. So many ways we could go with this. It's uh, we're talking about shooting lines here. All right. Yeah, yep. Yep. All right. Settle so, down. I mean, for several years, I've been using Dyneema as an alternative to monofilament. Yep. The reason why I use Dyneema is, uh, for a start, uh, the breaking strain of Dyneema is close to triple or even more than your standard monofilament. Okay. So two mil can go up to 500 kilos. Yep. And uh, it's also definitely far better on uh, abrasion in coral around uh, structures, rocks, barnacles, and uh if it's actually damaged a little bit, the strength is only partly compromised. On monofilament, you, if you've got a little nick or cut and you shoot a big fish, the odds are that it's going to split right there. Mm. With Dyneema, it's actually still going to land you that fish. So it's a lot more forgiving. Okay. Uh, doesn't have memory. Uh, and the, mm. probably one good thing the spearers are going to like as well is the fact the servicing cycle of Dyneema shooting line is far probably 10 to 1 compared to monofilament. You just don't have to change it very often. Okay. And what about cost versus mono? Well, yeah, it's definitely dearer. Uh, I'm not sure how much mono costs. I know it's definitely uh, fairly cheaper monofilament. Dyneema can vary between 2 and $3 a meter depending on the brand that you buy. Okay. But at the end of the day, you're not changing it very often uh, okay. and uh, it lasts a long time. So probably long term, it works out cheaper and better. Mate, I, I actually used to... Uh used to do use it as a shooting line mm-hmm. now i just used to tie a bowline through the uh eye of the spear how do you how do you attach your dynema yeah you can use knots um we might the, the dynema that i use can actually be crimped right uh, um but be aware that not all dynemas can be crimped safely some dynemas depending on the construction of the dynema on the outer sleeve uh, it, uh crimps can uh, can slip the dynema i use uh, the crimps, uh, with the right crimps, it does not slip. So you actually get, uh, it's a bit better than a knot because it's, it's going to be a lot, a bit more streamlined yep. through the water. And um, I attach it with crimps uh, most of the time. And if I use really thin dynamos like uh, 1.4 on my uh, reef gun, yep. uh, I, I, I tend to knot it. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, I've had a really good... Um, experience uh, a good way of testing Dyneema 
wasn't last year, the year before in the Coral Sea where I shot a, uh, a GT, nothing huge, but it was just under 20 kilos. Still, a, you know, a fish that goes hard enough. I uh, shot it in shallow water. And I remember, uh, yeah, went straight through one ledge and out the other. Uh, coral was breaking other side. It was pulling that out. The bits of chunk coral was just getting smashed. And I thought, oh, dear. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. I remember one of the guys on the surface was just giggling. He could not stop his, you know, giggling. He's just giggling nonstop. And I'm thinking, I oh, know why he's giggling. He knows that I'm about to lose a good fish <laughs> <laughs> because of the shooting line. <laughs> but guess what? Uh, it did not, it barely got scratched. I pulled oh. the Dyneema back out, and on the surface, he goes, Mate, I did not pop, I didn't think you were going to land that fish. And we looked at Dyneema, it was barely scuffed. So if you're serious about landing big fish in the coral or just in general, use Dyneema. A lot of the good divers around the world definitely use Dyneema on, uh, you know, the chase big fish. Uh, is, and plus, you're not going to lose your shaft because if you on monofilament, if the shaft is going to break, it's generally going to happen on a big fish. Mm. So, yeah, it's mm. a double whammy. You'll lose the big fish and the shaft. Right. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take your advice for our Kato trip, so Kato reef trip. So I think it's I think it's good stuff. What brands can you recommend? Because I've used uh, some things that look like Dyneema that haven't been Dyneema and um, have been pretty crappy, and other Dyneema seems to be bulletproof. So what brands should we look or what should we look for in a good Dyneema? Okay, uh, generally uh, the price uh, will give you a good indication on Dyneema. Dyneema is very in Australia, it's very rarely under two dollars a meter. You you, you want to keep an app. The average is around the $2.50. There's several brands. Mm-hmm. I've got my own brand of uh, Dyneema, uh, the Manisar, but there's other brands. Uh, I know in Australia they use brands like Rob Allen and uh, I think there's other brands. Uh, Bersha also have got their own brand mm-hmm. as well. So generally, uh, yeah, there's a few brands that do work. Uh, some of them have got different characteristics, uh, different sizing. I would Sorry. recommend us the shop. Yep, and a good... A good crimping, so the, the ones that you can actually crimp, what, what, how are they different or what do we look for there? Well, my Dyneema has been tested for a f- quite a few years and uh, with crimps and hasn't failed yet. Yep. Uh, it's a very stiff Dyneema, the one I use, the Manisub one. Yep. Uh, it's double construction. has got you know, the, the inner part plus uh, the outer sleeve, which is very tightly woven. Yep. And uh, if you can get a Dyneema that it's actually very stiff, uh, crimping will be a lot safer. If you find that the outer sleeve moves around a lot, I will probably not feel comfortable crimping it. Right. So you want to go for a very stiff Dyneema if you if you intend on crimping it. And of course, never crimps, never crimp the crimps to the very edge because they've got burrs on the end. Yep. Always leave, leave half a mil to a mil on each end uh, to be safe. And that the same applies for monofilament as well. Yep. Right, good stuff. Mate, I just want to ask you, I want to go back. You la- named a couple of brands. Did, did you say Bisha? Bersha. Bersha. Uh, is that the correct uh, way to say Boshat, like we all say up here in Queensland? Depending on uh, where you come from, everyone pronounces it uh, different. I call it Bosha or Bersha, Bersha, I don't know. You maybe should ask a French. I, mean, uh, I like how Australians say they just like bow chat, mate. Bow chat. Bow chat. I always look at it and go, I'm sure it's not bow chat, but I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah. We butcher yeah. heaps of stuff. It's There's good. a few brands out there. 
But uh, yeah, no, we'll definitely keep an eye out for the Manny sub stuff. I'm, I'm definitely going to get some because um, yeah, I hate, I actually hate rigging up. And um, when you're on a reef trip, you seem to be doing it all the time. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask a related question. I was just going to say, when you when you head out, maybe on a reef trip or even on a day trip, how many shafts do you take? And I mean, like <clears throat> you're just chasing reefies and maybe the odd pelagic or something. What, what are you taking out with you in regards to um, shafts and and, and and sort of setups and that? Well, it, it all depends on the location and the species that I'll be targeting. I mean, uh, if I go in places like the Coral Sea where you know you're going to be chasing dock toot, uh, then, yeah, I'll go pretty well prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, I generally like to have uh, at least uh, two to three shafts per gun. Okay. Uh, but in Sydney or up and down the coast, I'm a bit more, you know, probably only one or two at the most. Okay. Um, it really depends where you're diving and the species. But generally, if I'm diving in Sydney and I'm, I'm shooting, you know, pigs and moeys, yeah, you don't need a spare shaft generally. Maybe one. <laughs> <laughs> What's a pig? Is that a kingfish? Uh, black drummer. Black drummer. Yeah, right. blackfish. How often are you doing um, a bit of a bit of self maintenance on your equipment? Do you check it over after every dive, like when you wash it, or? Yeah, uh, if I shoot a big fish, absolutely. Uh, if I shoot little fish, uh, oh, no, I don't know. I don't have to check uh, the, the shooting line um, unless, obviously, the fish is in. A, I shoot the fish in a cave, and or it takes it through a cave. But uh, I generally keep always keep an eye on the floppers, the point of the spear shaft, that make sure the shaft is always straight. Um, uh, if you shoot big fish, if you don't shoot big fish, the shaft is not going to bend by itself, generally. Yeah, no. I was going to say, you sound like a guy who's pretty organised. I mean, Turbo here, you know, like if he checks his gear once a year, I mean, we're doing well, I reckon. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> it seems to go all right. <laughs> nah, it actually does, apart from your spear gun that you're building over there in the corner with cobwebs <laughs> on it and that. But um, no, nah, we won't mention that. Uh, so, look, next question I was going to ask you, Manny, was uh, about about rubber. Uh, I, I think you've got a bit of um, insight into sort of the quality uh, selecting the right brands and, you know, uh, we, we talked about uh, before the call, you, you mentioned cracks and sort of like um, replacing yeah. it before it gets cracks, I think. So. Well, the rubber is, uh, I consider it probably one of the most important components of the spear gun. Uh, at the end of the day, it is the motor of your spear gun. Without rubbers, the shaft is not going to move forward. So, yeah, uh, one of the first rules of rubbers is don't wait for it to crack before you change it. A lot of guys, you know, chop the bits off uh, when it's cracked and, you know, try and reutilize it. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue with rubber is that it actually breaks down internally without even, like, loses its spring. Yep. So, personally, I tend to change it every six months as a bare minimum. Okay. But if I'm, if I'm going on a serious trip where I know I'm spending a lot of money on traveling, I want, I want to give my gun the best possible chance and have peak performance. Yep. And I always put new rubbers on big trips on my guns. Uh, I know some other guys as well around the world that I keep in touch with and every time they go on trips, they do the same sort of thing, new rubbers on guns on big trips. Cool. As rubbers wear, you do tend to lose a fair bit of performance. So if you want peak performance, keep your rubbers uh, sort of new. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, don't just go off color uh, by color. A lot of people tend to identify uh, rubbers by color. Or oh, the blue one is good, or the red one, or the black one. Color is just a pigment. Um, rubbers go by blends and manufacturers, and different manufacturers around the world uh, of rubbers have got different, um, I guess, specs. Okay. So my suggestion is 
try different rubbers. Don't just stick to one. Try some because each rubber has got its properties mm. and you're not going to know what's the best rubber if you just stick to the one. Swap them around. Do dif- Try different settings. Uh, and, of course, don't try and use the wrong thickness on the wrong shaft. I've seen, you know, that, that also applies. <laughs> Make it's- sure you <laughs> As I was, was going to say, like, I'll, like when I started doing my own sort of spear gun maintenance and doing my own rubbers and that, I had three different spreadsheets for different gun sizes and rubber length. So, like, one spreadsheet I had, it had 14mm, 16mm, 18mm, 20mm rubbers, yep. uh, and then it had all the different gun lengths and it had, like, what you should cut your rubber to when you did it in, at home. And uh, all three of these charts were all different. Uh, so obviously they came probably from different rubber manufacturers. Is there kind of like maybe in an uh, independent guide or something to, to, to this stuff or is it all just kind of we all just have to make it up as we go along? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, okay. I don't go off tables uh, yeah. and charts because, I mean, they tell you to cut that rubber 50 centimetres or 20, but what sort of rubber are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they would have done, they would have come up uh, with those numbers on one rubber, uh, every rubber behaves and stretches differently. Some of them, uh, you got, I mean, you got two types of rubbers. You got progressive and reactive. Progressive is the rubber that tends to be uh, be smoother and stretch further. Reactives uh, are a bit more snappy and harder to pull back. Uh, okay. If you go for chart, well, which which rubber we're using? So I would recommend based on the rubber. You can use the actual chart as a generic guide, but don't go 100% off it. Just come up with your own settings on what works best. Okay, cool. Best way to test it is to do pull testing with rubbers and settings. Uh, in the water, you're not going to notice. You're going to notice some difference, but if you really want to get, you know, find out the exact difference between each rubber, is by doing penetration tests in swimming pools at the same distance, and then you're going to get your results on paper. Okay. I, I have never tested anything in a swimming pool like uh, it's come up a few times now like turbo and i've talked about going down to the gold coast seaway and setting some stuff up in there and doing some gun testing and trials and stuff um it, it is an awful lot of effort to go to uh, obviously it's not very fun i'd rather go spear fishing on that day yeah yeah me too we so, all <laughs> so like um how do you how would you set up a a, a testing session in the swimming pool manny well Depends uh, in what, what part of the world you live. In Australia, trying to get a session uh, a session in a swimming pool is very challenging. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would probably recommend try to use someone's swimming pool that don't mind getting copying a shaft on the other end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's honest at least. Yeah. So yeah. I, I can hear an offer coming here. Have you got a tiled swimming pool we could use? Uh, not tiled. Uh, it was tiled before. Now it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody but, uh, d- double I wrap guns. I used to pull um, like a compressed uh, fibro, which is about, I think, 15 mil thick. They use it for in balconies when you build a balcony as a foundation, I believe. Yeah, it's extremely yeah. strong. So we put two panels down beyond the actual uh, target, about one meter beyond the target. Unless, of course, you've got a very, very long swimming pool, uh, then different story. Then you can obviously, you don't need to worry, worry about having protection at the back wall. But uh, you need a fairly long pool if that's the case. Yep. Your average shine pools, I think, max out at 10, 12 meters at best. And if you're testing a very powerful gun, uh, yeah, it's going to do damage. <laughs> mm. Okay, cool. What sort of target do you set up, by the way? 
Oh, yeah. Um, I use a, a very uh, five, uh, five centimeters of compressed uh, foam. It's uh, There's different foams on the market. Um, to be honest, uh, I don't know the type of foam, but I know it's really rock hard. It's like a kickboard used for uh, swimming. Mm-hmm. But I know there's different kickboards out there. I'll go for the stiffest one. And uh, I found that it's probably this particular board that I use, it's uh, perfect for testing guns at five meters from the tip of the, the actual spear shaft. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, it, it really it doesn't slow down the shaft too much, but it also lets it penetrate. So you can get a good indication on uh, how much it penetrates. And I go on the other side after I shoot it and measure it with, with the ruler and write down all the specs on paper. Okay, uh, wow. If you put too much foam, it'll be too much of a stop, and you won't you'll get you won't you won't get a reading. And if it's too soft, you're gonna string it every time. So you're gonna have to find the right board to to get consistency. Cool. I'm I'm finished with um, pull testing. Brown, have you got any more questions? Because I want to go into roller heads. Yeah, no, definitely. Let's okay. roll on the roller heads. Okay, cool. Well, it is Manny from Manny Sub after all. So we want to put you under the gun for with rollers. Um, sure. Right, so with roller muzzles, um, one thing I heard when I was going to get a roller muzzle for a recent um, conversion I did um, on my aluminium gun was um, one person commented that many sub uh, roller muzzles have got bearings in them, um, and they thought, you know, obviously that's going to be a point of failure in salt water. What what would what what would you say to that? No, uh, I mean, bearings, uh, if you want the best performing roller muscles, you need to have bearings. Yep. Um, I guess it is an extra bit that could potentially fail, but likely the bearings that we use, the sub are pretty good. Uh, the failure rate is extremely, and I mean extremely small. We're talking maybe one bearing per year out of thousands that are going out every year. So it's not really much of an issue. Uh, the beauty about bearings is that um, on my kits, I've got four bearings, two per wheel. Yep. And that actually helps uh, uh, the rubbers uh, retract a lot faster and smoother compared to rollers that haven't got um, bearings. Yeah. There's going to be a lot more friction on the actual uh, bolt or the, the rod that goes through the rollers if you haven't got bearings. Mm. And that acts a bit like a, a brake. So yep. you lose a fair bit of performance on muzzles without bearings. That's just, why they use them. I was just going to say, like, I mean, that's kind of where bearings come in as a as an engineering solution was to help with the smooth transition of friction. Of, yeah. So exactly. Yeah. Cool. So yeah. I mean, with your roller heads with with bearings in them, um, is there some? Is, do you need to make sure that you wash them out and fully flush them at the end of a a, a dive in salt water? Obviously. Well, yeah, uh, like all dive gear, I always recommend to give it a quick uh, rinse, but these bearings haven't got any metal components. So even if you don't wash them, it's not a problem. Okay. Made out of uh, acetal, which is a hard nylon, and also made out of glass. So there's nothing that can actually corrode. Cool. So sometimes I go without washing them for several days. Sometimes I forget, don't wash them, and they don't fail. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, that was one one objection I had when I was, like I said, as I did mine. So I really wanted to ask you about that. And um, the other the other question I wanted to sort of ask was, um, you know, we're hearing a lot about inverted rollers and you know some of the and some double rollers that are coming on the market. I wanted to ask you sort of, you know, 
an inverter roller versus a double roller, what are some of the pros and cons? Well, a double roller works on the same principle of uh, a single roller. You've virtually got uh, four rollers, uh, two on each side. Double rollers uh, come in two, t- uh, there's two types of double rollers. You can have two rollers in line mm-hmm. or two rollers uh, offset, uh, one in front and one at the back uh, and slightly offset to the side so to avoid the friction of the rubber. With double rollers, uh, it works, I guess, like a single roller. You just got uh, two rubbers to load, and they do make a lot of power. Inverter roller uh, makes the same sort of power, but you can add more rubbers underneath. You can make it triple or four rubber gun on an inverter roller and create even more power than a double roller. Oh, wow. Uh, and the beauty about the, I guess, the inverted one is uh, that you don't actually uh, have it, virtually almost no recoil. A double roller, I'm being picky here, does yeah. have some recoil. Probably to guys that are used to firing normal guns, yep. they probably think, what are you talking about? There's no recoil on this. But uh, I'm being very picky here. But a double roller definitely has got more recoil than an inverted roller. Okay, cool. And so, like, okay, so you're going to fit a an inverter. You want to tr- convert a, you know, like a normal rail gun to an inverted roller. What's the process look like for that? Do you do that sort of thing in your workshop? I mean, how, how hard is it? Well, it is fairly hard. Uh, I've already done several conversions for people. Uh, I'm only just, I'm about to launch the inverter roller uh, complete gun in the, in the next week or so. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, a lot of guys, if they want to save money, getting a conversion is definitely a lot cheaper than okay. buying the whole gun. Uh, doing it yourself, uh, uh, if you haven't done one before, it's quite a complex uh, system to do yourself. Once you learn, obviously, it gets easier. I would recommend if you haven't done it before, get someone that knows what he's doing to do it for you. Uh, it's definitely way more complex than setting up uh, a roller, a standard roller muzzle. Okay. Uh, the inverter roller is definitely more complex. Uh, yeah. I took I took my I'll be I'll be honest I took my gun into the shop and they did the roller just a single roller conversion for me um and you know like I wanted to reduce the size of my barrel I wanted um I wanted I wanted to see what the height was about um but you know like I, I love the idea of using a smaller gun not having to worry about tracking so much and so um I, I did a few things to it but um, I'm really looking forward to giving it a good testing because so far it hasn't had one but uh, okay yeah. what but size it, did you get. So I had a 1.4 railgun, and I've cut it back to a 1050. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. And uh, just running 16 mil bands. So, and and, I, and again, like you, you talked about rubber and stuff, and I didn't know anything uh, about really about choosing the right rubber for my gun. And I, I, it's going to be a trial trial of error by error, I suppose. So, um, I'm, I'm, yeah, like I say, I'm looking forward to giving you a good open water test and seeing how it performs. Yeah, with rollers, uh, the, uh, the actual setting, it's a bit more finicky than a normal gun uh, in, order, in order to get them to work uh, really well. Yep. Uh, you've got to pair up the right shaft with the right bands, uh, the right thickness band, and also the right blend of bands because, some, some, as I mentioned before, you've got progressive and reactive, and they give two totally different results on roller guns. Mm. Uh, and uh, you also got an <coughs> excuse me. Uh, the you got understand. <coughs> sorry, guys. You're all, right. all good. You got to understand uh, how the pretension works on uh, roller guns. So there's a few extra factors uh, on rollers that you need to take into account when setting one up. Yeah, 
Yeah, cool. All right, I'm gonna. I'm sort of halfway through writing a, a blog post for um, spearfishing.com.au, who who sells some of your gear as well. But um, yeah, it's an interesting little experiment for me. I I, I really haven't moved much past the rail gun the whole time I've been spearfishing. So, um, but yeah, it, need, it needs to have a good test yet before I can really make any comments. So we're gonna wrap up Veterans Vault, but uh, I just wanted to sort of give you a chance to to promote Manny Sub a little bit, but um, I mean, where can people come and find you and ask some questions if they've got some questions about rollerheads and, and things like that? Well, yeah, if you've got any specific questions on uh, guns, settings and stuff on Manny Sub, you can certainly call me direct. Uh, you can find me on my website, uh, Yep. Uh, also, there's uh, Adreno that, uh, and a few other stores around Australia that uh, resell uh, my brand. Okay. You can also ask in store. A lot of these shops know their stuff. So give them a call uh, and uh, I'll fire the questions away. Awesome. All right. Um, have you written many blog articles and stuff about rollers as well? Um, at the beginning, I did uh, because uh, people didn't know literally much about them. Uh, it was at the very beginning. Uh, since, uh, not really. Uh, I've just okay. been building guns. <laughs> okay. Shop. Well, if, if you've got some good um, article links, I'll grab them from you after the show and we'll, we'll put them in the show notes so people can come and find you as well. So, sure. Cool. I, I feel like we've done a pretty good veterans' fault there, so thanks for that. Today's Veterans Vault was brought to you in partnership with Penetrator Fins. Making the switch from plastic freediving fins to a carbon or composite freediving blade makes a huge difference. You don't feel like you're finning through mud anymore. Fatigue and soreness in the ankles goes away. Penetrator blades are lighter and more reactive and they've improved my diving and I'm sure they're going to improve yours. Check out the custom Noob Spiro Octopus Edition at noobspiro.com or for the full range of Penetrator Fins, head over to penetratorfins.com. Let's move into the funniest thing. So what's the funniest thing you've experienced out spearfishing? Yeah, um, it was a story uh, that, that involved a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Paul Rosso, co- very competitive uh, spearer. He, he represented Austra- Australia several times uh, overseas, and he also won one of the nationals. Uh, what happened was uh, one day, um, by that stage, it goes back quite a few years ago, by the way, uh, I was I just started dating uh, my wife uh, at the time, and uh, I remember him coming around and saying, uh, for a change, uh, he didn't want to talk about fish stories. He said, "Oh, by the way, man, you wouldn't know, you know, your wife. Does your wife got any friends or cousins that you know you could set me up with?" And I thought, <laughs> "What are you talking about, man? Are you serious?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah." I totally ignored him, uh, and then we just started talking diving again. I thought this guy's just trying to take the piss out of me, you know. <laughs> about a week later he starts asking again I said are you serious man he goes yeah what am I certainly now I'm thinking man seriously well he kept insisting and then at the end I thought man this guy is for real he wants to settle down and I said actually uh, I said my wife I said she's actually she wasn't my wife at the time was my girlfriend of course I said she's gone out with some friends uh, just at the local club they're having dinner um, he goes do you want to go and Check, check him out. He goes, yeah, let's do a drive-by. <laughs> and I thought, all right, let's do it. I said, we're going in. He goes, no, 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 we're not going We're going to stalk him. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, under eating right there. I went, yeah, there was like this glass panel that was tinted. <laughs> and um, 
they, they obviously where they were, where they were, there was actually quite a fair bit of light. We're on the outside in the dark, so we could actually see in, but they couldn't see out. So we did a drive by with a car, and she goes, "Which one is it?" I said, "That one there, man, could suit you." And he goes, "I remember this words." She goes, "She'll do." <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe my ears. She goes, "Yeah, she'll do." I went fine. So about a month later, it was uh, there was a party, and I invited him over, and he came around, and uh, and I said, by the way, I mean, uh, I introduced you to this girl, potentially could be, you know, your life partner. You just don't know. But w- what are we going? I mean, I want something that's changed. I said a joke, yeah, yeah, no, we'll give you something. Uh, I said, no, no, I'm telling you what I want. I want your your Jewfish and snapper spot. And he goes, done. No, I said, no, 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 we need no. to shake on this. We <laughs> want these spots. So it really was a firm handshake and I looked at him in the eyes, Jewfish spot and snapper spot, right? He goes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we virtually, uh, there was a handshake uh, for a person uh, in exchange of a Jewfish spot. <laughs> <For> dive spots. <laughs> spot. Love it. Oh, the story gets better. So we're going to trip up the coast uh, a few months later. And I said, don't remember the deal, Jewish spot. He goes, yeah. So we get to this spot and uh, I said, so where's the Jewish? He goes, man, right there. That's where I shot him last time. It's a bit of white water. So I jumped in and started swimming. Guess what? Dive down, full of Jewies. And I thought, yeah. I cannot believe it. Shoot one, perfect, landed. Uh, it was my first Jewie. Uh, oh, nice. Went 14 kilos. Oh, so beautiful. I was stoked. I thought, how good is this? Good deal. Uh, you could see that he wasn't happy because this guy is very, very competitive. And if you shoot one, fi- one fish more than him or bigger than his, he just gets quite uh, – he just cannot by, by going – you just go serious all day. You just – you can't get a smile out of his face. It's just <laughs> competitive. <laughs> the next day, we're still up, up the coast. The next day, we virtually – in knew that I shot a Dewey there. We go back to the same spot. But this time he thought, you've already shot one. I'm going to try and have a go. And, but it was, we didn't discuss it. It was just like uh, we're in the boat and you could tell there was go- it was going to be a race to the spot. And it was just a very bad atmosphere in the boat because we were- <laughs> 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 uh, I wanted to jump in the water first, but no one wanted to make it obvious. So I remember just getting my gear and we were looking at each other from the corner of our eyes, what, each, what the other person is doing. Occasionally one arm would just grab a piece of gear faster than the other. You could tell there was pressure, but you didn't want to make it obvious. Yeah, yeah. So, mate, it was pretty obvious that we was going to be a race to the spot. So we, we jump in at the same time and as soon as we hit the water, we look at each other and he's thinking, I'm not letting you dive to the spot. So it's a freestyle race to the spot. <laughs> it's freestyle. <laughs> we get to the spot together. We both dive down. First in, best dressed. The fish are not there. <laughs> <laughs> the fish are not there. So we look at each other without any words. He raises his eyebrows. I raise mine. Like they're not here. So he goes left. I go out wide. Uh, I do a dive about 15, 16 meters, laying on the bottom. Guess what? The school is right there. One of the fish comes out in mid-water. Never had a Jewy do that before. Um, mid-water, just like a king, swims up to me and bang, stone it right in the head. And I thought, <laughs> oh, how good is this? Paul is not going to like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember lifting my head up. He can see my gun floating just behind me. And he goes, 
it doesn't, it, the guy knows something is up. He knows I shot something, but he doesn't want to ask. He goes, did you get something? And I went, fuck yeah, I got a Jewy. Uh-huh. I remember. Uh, are we allowed to swear on this show? Yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. You've already done it about 25 it. times now, so. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I, I clearly remember when he goes, what'd you get? Go, got a Jewy. I remember. He goes, fuck you, you're on your own now. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the other way. And uh, so it was pretty gold that moment. Uh, sounded It sounded like an F1 story because you're Italian and that. You, yeah. you, you're gearing up at a rapid rate of knots and jumping out of the boat. It was like Ferrari versus BMW for me or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was definitely a race. And when I got two Jewies and, uh, and you, you still had a shot one, uh, he, I remember him just cursing me. He goes, you're on your own now. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, now, the snapper spot. What happens to the, sna- what happens to the snapper spot? Uh, well, it took me to a snapper spot. There was no snapper. I'm, I'm still, he reckons that that's the spot. I'm, I'm a believer it was a bit of a dummy spot. Ah, yeah. <laughs> what are those spots? Did he, did he end up marrying this woman? Oh, of course. Oh, by the way, that's the highlight of the story. But uh, the moral of the story is you're going to have to edit this piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the moral of the story is that uh, he's uh, happily married with uh, three beautiful kids. Ah, cool. So yeah. he ended up marrying the the woman behind the mirror. And, uh, yeah. And you got a Jewfish, so and it all worked out. I got I got two Jewies out of the spot. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty good. All right. So, um this part of the show is called dive bag. So, what's in your dive bag, man? Head to toe. What equipment are you using on normal day to day spearfishing? All right. Um, let's start with guns. Um, there's many sizes, but there's pretty much two sizes I predominantly use. Uh, in Sydney, in sort of with an average visibility of about thirty feet, ten meters or so, I use a ninety. And when I go away up the coast uh, or overseas chasing bigger stuff, I use a 1.1. So I'll predominantly use uh, a 90 and a 1.1, uh, many sub roller guns. I've also got, uh, obviously the 1.1 inverted roller, which, um, uh, it's, uh, more powerful obviously than the 1.1 standard roller. Yeah. Yep. Uh, masks, uh, I use only recently, uh, I actually moved on from the Technics of, uh, micro mask, um, yep. and found a mask actually that offers slightly more vision without um, still low volume, but without leaving uh, the skirting mark on your forehead. Um, and that's uh, a mask called Noah. Noah mask from made by Salvimar. It's relatively new, but it's a really good mask. Uh, very comfortable and very low volume. Okay, cool. Uh, fins. Uh, I use uh, Divar fins. I've got uh, several sets. Uh, I've got carbons and composites. I mostly used composite, but this is a custom composite that he made uh, for me, and uh, it's very similar to carbon. Not quite, but uh, I like very soft fins. Uh, so, yeah, use them. Uh, wetsuits, uh, I use all types, but I tend to lean towards the smooth skins. Okay. And uh, for many years, uh, I've always used uh, custom, uh, custom-made, so tailor-made. They take your measurements and uh, they make it to, to your size, literally. Wow. Uh, these ones that I've got, the, the latest smooth skins are called sandwich neoprene. And what they do is uh, they put a, a, sh- a layer of lining, uh, nylon lining, in, sandwiched in the middle of the actual uh, wetsuit, which helps okay. stops it from tearing because smooth skins without uh, the actual lining uh, do tear fairly easily. 
you should always carry a spare one if using a full smooth skin without any uh, uh, lining in the middle. Okay. Uh, they are fairly new uh, and they are a lot more expensive, but they're definitely worth it. Uh, other than that, uh, I use special dive weights. Uh, they're actually um, they're made in Italy. Um, they look like uh, hand grenades. They're like pretty much identical, that round uh, with the grooves, just like a small hand grenade. But the beauty about these weights is they're fully rubber uh, rubberized mm-hmm. and you screw them on. So if you go in a shallow spot, you can add more on and if you go deep, you can remove them without having to slide them out. You've got like a very thin, low-profile nylon base and you screw these weights on, like you literally turn them by hand and you can take them on and off in 5, 10 seconds. It's just really right, good cool. dive weights. Uh, yeah, nice. Yeah, all very right. practical. All right, uh, the, all right, so uh, now, Manny, it is time for Fast Five Facts for Noobs. Mate, if you could give us your top five pieces of advice for new guys starting out. All right, well, number one, if you want to get good, join a spearfishing club. But if you really want to get good, I would recommend starting uh, competing. Okay. Uh, competing exposes you to a different, um, I mean, different environments, different conditions, uh, dirty water, clean water, rough, flat, cold and warm water, and you still got to be able to produce fish in all conditions. So... By competing, you learn to become a very versatile diver all the time. Plus, I'm a big believer in competitions. Guys, I mean, based my personal opinion is, yeah, you tend to pull that extra gear that you don't pull uh, on a social level. Yep. Uh, you just go that much harder and you're on the ball on the day and you think very, you know, you're very focused. No worries. So, yeah. Okay, we're going to keep moving you through pretty quick, Manny, because it's fast five, but uh, yeah. okay. we can circle up and check them back out again on the way out if you like. So number two. Uh, guys that are new to the sport, um, don't try and learn too fast. I've seen a lot of uh, guys that are new wanting to learn and land big fish just too quickly for their experience. I'm a big believer that spear fishing um, is a very slow learning sport, so take your time and you will get the big fish that you want or the long dives that you're trying to achieve. Don't push yourself too fast. Take your time. Awesome. All right, number three. Number three, reels. Uh, a lot of guys these days are using reels. Uh, I think they've got a, a place, and that's not definitely on big fish and deep water. Uh, reels, uh, I find them fairly dangerous for many reasons. When people shoot fish, tend to hang on to their gun. They don't want to lose their possessions, and hanging on to the gun coming back to the surf- surface from a deep, deep dive uh, can cause you potentially a blackout. And uh, I think statistically a lot of people that have blacked out, uh, to a lot of them were using reels. Uh, not sure the actual stats, but uh, there seems to be a high number of guys. Okay, cool. So, uh, yeah, I reckon for big fish, use inline system or breakaway than a reel. A reel is great on uh, shore stuff like uh, snapper and jewfish. And uh, still use a float so people can see you. Okay, cool. Number four? Number four, uh, prepare uh, properly on the surface. Take your time, relax, and try and slow down your breathing. A good way of doing that is basically trying to simulate the state of mind when you're in bed, when you're about to fall asleep. So I often close my eyes uh, before diving, especially when the dive tends to be a bit uh, deeper than normal, where you need the breath hold. Close your eyes and try and focus on your breathing and relax. By closing your eyes, 
you don't you don't get distracted by things going past your face when it's a jellyfish and you can concentrate and just before diving down open your eyes uh, again uh, during that process though I've experienced micro sleeps where I've woken up slightly I wouldn't say disoriented but I didn't know which way I was pointing but it's a good thing you know that you're rel- relaxed uh, and yeah okay number five number five. Very important. If you're going to have a big day, whether it's a competition the next day or just a big social day hunting fish, get a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep, I reckon, it's when you wake up naturally, not with a clock. So you should really, yeah, get a good night rest. And during the day, also drink lots of water whilst you're diving. All right, I'm going to sum them up for you. So number one, if you want to get good, join a spearfishing club. If you want to get really good, start doing competitions. Number two, don't try and learn too fast. Um, you know, there's a slow learning curve with spearfishing, and just just respect that. Number three, reels. Uh, they they do have their place, but not on deep fish and not in deep water. And uh, and you, you you shelled that out a bit more. So number four, prepare properly on the surface. And I've just put here simulate sleeping. And uh, and number five, sleep well the day before a dive, which is um, all good stuff. Yeah. All right, we're coming to the end of the show, uh, Manny, and. Um, we, you know, we've we've talked with you before, and we're really excited that you've um, decided to give away a roller muzzle kit to one of our listeners. So, That's right, yeah. So we're going to link this competition up in your show notes, and uh, basically, if people want to come on, they can. We're going to set it up so you like us on Facebook and like Manny Sub on Facebook, and there might be a few other ways to enter the competition easily. And then, uh, you know, we'll run that comp for a couple of weeks, and the winner will get a Manny Sub roller muzzle kit. Excellent. Yeah. Ah, thanks for that, and uh, big thanks for the person that wins it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I will be entering. I think that's. Uh, we'll just put that in. Are we allowed to enter our own comp? Yeah. Of course, you can. Why we'll, not? we'll put that in the T's and C's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure you're the winner. I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, look, is there anything else you you know you'd want our audience to come and take a look at, Manny? Um, you, you got a Facebook page. Yeah, I got a Facebook uh, page, uh, Manny Sub. Yep. And uh, also website as well, uh, rollerspearguns.com. Okay, cool. All right, well, well, we'll link those both up in the show notes. So come and have a look at Manny's show notes because there's going to be a few things in there. We've gone over a lot of gear stuff today, a lot of roller gun stuff. So we'll, we'll put some photos in and we, we're going to have that big snapper photo in there for some of our American listeners. So, okay, <laughs> Manny, have you got any parting pieces of guidance for our audience? Oh, uh, I'll have to pause on that. Um, sorry, guys, uh, I haven't got that question. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're all right. You're all right. Pause, mate. You're you're Italian. Give me a good, quick recipe. Uh, uh, pasta with um, garlic. <laughs> Works. <laughs> <laughs> More for the beginners, but also, I guess, uh, experienced divers as well. Always be safe. Uh, prepare properly on the surface. Spearfishing, it is fairly dangerous, so you only get one crack at it. Learn to say no on that big fish when it's a no. Don't always put a shaft into fish because you just want to land it. That's really good, Manny. You've had some absolute gold today. I've I've loved learning about equipment and some of the other stuff. I mean, I didn't know anything about rubber and some of the other things you've you've talked about today, so it's been awesome. We've got an absolute ton of value out of you, so thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to today's show. Make sure to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. To learn more about becoming a better Spiro, visit us at noobspiro.com and subscribe to our newsletter. 
Shrek, why don't you tell our listeners how they can save some money on spearfishing gear? Well, Adreno have partnered up with Noob Spiro to offer listeners $20 off all purchases over 200 bucks. And how do they take advantage of this deal, mate? Uh, listeners can use the code Noob Spiro at checkout online at spearfishing.com.au or they can use it in-store at the Brisbane or Sydney stores. Excellent. And that code is Noob Spiro. That's right, Noob Spiro.